You're listening to Payers, Providers, and Patients. Oh my. I'm Kyle Nanabuddy. And I'm Joe Records, and today we're chatting with two of our colleagues, Savannah Williams and Jody Daniel, about interoperability, which is a buzzword you've probably heard lately uh, related to healthcare, the healthcare industry. Um, it's a, a broad term that we use to talk about the exchange and use of health information. Today we'll discuss the interpretation and implementation of interoperability regulations issued just last year by CMS and ONC. Uh, we'll also talk about challenges that we've observed from our experiences advising companies on these rules, and we'll look forward to additional guidance and potential enforcement of these rules. Let's get started by asking Jody to give us a brief recap of interoperability and its importance to the healthcare industry. Great, thank you, Pyle and Joe. Interoperability is, uh, it's a mouthful, it's a big word, um, but it is actually a really important context in healthcare. So generally, interoperability is about systems being able to communicate with each other. And here we're talking about health data interoperability. So as the healthcare system moved to using health information technology and using electronic health records or EHRs, the whole point was for the data to follow the patient throughout their healthcare journey and to support care coordination, reduce medical errors, reduce unnecessary tests, and thereby increase the quality of care and lower costs. So that's why we're talking about health data interoperability is to talk about how that data can follow the patient through that journey. So this actually, I'm gonna take us back in the way back machine to about 15 years ago when the federal government was starting to promote the use of electronic health records. And about 10 years ago, they started paying doctors and hospitals to adopt electronic health records and to use them, quote, in a meaningful way. So this was, the whole goal here was to use computers, to use health information technology, to improve care, lower costs, and provide data to create a learning healthcare system to be able to learn from all the information we have to improve healthcare and healthcare delivery. Um, and one of the keys to seeing benefits was not just to create these nice computer files in doctor's offices and hospitals, but to have those systems be interoperable and have that data be able to move with that patient across their healthcare journey. So the government had this program called the EHR Incentive Program, also known as the Meaningful Use Program. And now, because government likes to change names all the time with their different programs, called the Promoting Interoperability Program. Um, and so that's why we're having this conversation is because um, the government uh, spent $34 billion in trying to promote uh, adoption of health IT by doctors and hospitals and were very frustrated when they didn't see the benefits of in terms of patient care, cost reductions, improved research, et cetera, because that data wasn't flowing. It was basically getting locked in silos, not in the file cabinets, but in the computers in doctor's offices and in hospitals. So that led to the government trying to figure out, well, what should we do? How do we make this data move? How do we get this data to be interoperable so that information can follow the patient and we can see some of those benefits in the investment that we made in these electronic health record systems uh, over 10 years ago? Thanks, Jody. So, so now that we know kind of what interoperability is and, and what it um, was intended to, to do, Savannah, can I ask you to kind of paint the landscape for us, give us an idea of what the regulatory 
landscape looks like, what the agencies are that oversee and, and regulate interoperability, what those regs look like, and what their applicability is? Yeah, thank you, Jill. So within the Department of Health and Human Services, there are two separate divisions that operate in the interoperability space. The first is the Office of the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology, which is a mouthful, of course, so uh, we'll refer to that as ONC. And second is the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS. Both of these agencies have their own interoperability regulations that came out in May of 2020. So I'll call them the ONC rule and the CMS rule. And both of the rules have the same overall goal of promoting interoperability and prohibiting the practice of information blocking. So I'll start off by saying that both of these regulations are very lengthy and very complicated. And of course, they have their relevant exceptions, as many regulations do. So I would encourage you to check out Kroll and Mooring, um, our healthcare team's client alerts for the full specifics on both of these regulations. But generally speaking, the ONC rule implements the interoperability requirements of the 21st Century Cures Act, including prohibitions against information blocking. And the CMS rule uses the agency's existing authority over health plans to promote interoperability and patient access to electronic health information. Both of these regulations require that health data is more easily available to patients, including the ability to enable patients to access their own electronic health information through third-party apps of their choice. The ONC rule prohibits information blocking broadly, which means the practice that is likely to interfere with, prevent, or materially discourage the access, use, or exchange of electronic health information. This general prohibition applies to healthcare providers, developers of certified health IT, and health information networks and exchanges. Now, in order to balance the needs for health um, electronic health information access and also public health policy concerns, ONC provides for eight exceptions for practices that are safe harbored from the information blocking prohibition. These eight exceptions are very thorny, so I'll just say that they fall into two categories. First is activities where it's acceptable to delay, restrict, or deny access, exchange, or use of electronic health information as long as you meet the exceptions requirements. And two, activities that relate to the processes and procedures for fulfilling the access, exchange, and use requirements. ONC has some really helpful fact sheets on their website that break down each of these eight exceptions and what you have to do to meet those. So I would encourage you to review those. The CMS rule imposes patient access requirements on CMS payers, which includes Medicare Advantage programs, Medicaid and Children's Health Insurance or CHIP managed care plans, state agencies and qualified health plan issuers on federally facilitated exchanges. So patients, their representatives, and third-party apps designated by those patients or their representatives are able to request access to claims and encounter information and all of their clinical data maintained by a health plan. And these CMS payers are required to provide access to this information unless the payer determines that allowing an app, for example, to connect with the payer system would present an unacceptable level of risk to the security of the protected health information stored on that system. There are also requirements for payer-to-payer -payer exchange of electronic health information at the direction of the individual so that information can flow um, and follow the patient as they switch health plans. 
Like I said before, there are many more requirements in this, and so you should check out our client alerts on both of these rules for all of the specifics. Thanks, Savannah. So with that background, um, I'd like to turn it over to Jody to discuss the practical impact of these rules. So what are companies doing to comply with the rules and what are some of the challenges we've seen so far in their efforts to comply? Thanks, Pyle. Um, that, that's, there's a lot in that, those questions that you're asking um, and it really boils down to all of the detail that Savannah mentioned um, and some of the complexity of these rules. So first it depends on who we're talking about. Uh, in some cases, our clients are just trying to figure out, do the rules even apply? Um, as Savannah had mentioned, the ONC rule applies to a certain set of actors, healthcare providers, certified health IT developers, and health information exchanges and networks. And then the CMS rule applies to certain health plans. So just taking the ONC rule, for example, um, is a, an, a, an entity a healthcare provider? We've had clients ask questions about that. We have uh, clients ask questions about whether they're a health information network or a health information exchange, um, because those terms are not previously defined terms. And the rules are actually quite complicated as to the definitions of those terms. So, for example, uh, we know what a health information exchange is. There are these entities that enable and facilitate the exchange of health information among healthcare providers so that they can better coordinate care for their patients. Um, they operate all across the country and there are some uh, nationwide health information exchanges as well. But the rules also have um, these very specific terms of what's a health information network or health information exchange, and they are broader than those types of entities. Um, so for example, if there is an entity that is doing anything related to uh, health information exchange, if they have the discretion to control or administer any requirement, policy, or agreement that permits, enables, or requires the use of any technology, um, or services for access exchange or use of electronic health information, and it's among more than two unaffiliated individuals, they're a health information network. So that's a mouthful. And trying to tease out whether a particular activity makes somebody a health information network is quite complicated. There's also some interesting language in the preamble that says if an entity is just facilitating bilateral exchange, so between two parties, they're not a health information network. And you can imagine how entities are trying to figure out whether they're actually facilitating exchange among, you know, one-to-one, -one. there's a series of bilateral exchanges, or whether they're facilitating exchange among more than two unaffiliated parties. Um, in the case of uh, the CMS rule, same thing, there are some health plans are covered, others are not. So step one is, is the, act, is the entity even an actor under one of the two rules? That's just step one. Then if we look at the ONC rule, we see a lot of complications here. So first, is the information, is there electronic health information uh, at play? Not all information is covered by the rules. It is only information that is defined as electronic health information. And uh, that is generally um, information that is electronic and would be information that would be covered in a designated record set under HIPAA. So now we have a reference to another regulation to just figure out if the information is covered by the rules or not. Once we figure out 
if there is data that's covered and if there's an actor that's covered, we have to figure out if a practice is actually an interference with uh, access exchange or use of that electronic health information, whether it falls into one of these exceptions, which are quite detailed and have a lot of criteria, um, and if not, whether it still might nonetheless not be an interference. So, as you can imagine, every single activity that one of these actors engages in raises different questions about whether it's subject to the rule and whether it, um, it may be in violation of the rule or permissible under the rules. Just to give one example that has come up a lot, and this is one I think that folks will generally understand. So one of the things that ONC has said is that any delay in the provision of access to electronic health information to a patient could be considered an interference if it's done by an actor covered by the rules. So it is genuinely a practice that healthcare providers will not immediately release lab test results to a patient, that they want to be able to communicate that information directly by phone call or in the office. Um, so ONC has said that any delay could be an interference. So then the question comes up, well, does the individual have to request access to that data? Or does failing to make it immediately available through a patient portal constitute a potential interference with access to that data. A provider can try to figure out, could this mean an exception, like the preventing harm exception, or is there a privacy exception that might apply? So there are lots of questions just with that one example of, should a provider immediately release lab test results to a patient? Um, another question that comes up with the CMS rule is, what clinical data has to be shared? Does the plan actually maintain that clinical data? Um, and is it the kind of data that must be shared with the patient through, um, through the, under the CMS rule? There are also questions that the plans have had with regard to whether they can vet or screen the applications that may want to connect on behalf of a patient to access that data. And um, again, the plan is required to educate a patient about privacy and security practices of an application that they may be using to access their data, but they cannot block the availability of that information to the patient just because they don't like the privacy policies. So this creates a lot of operational questions, a lot of legal questions, a lot of technical questions, um, and, um, and, and we have very little to go on so far because there's been no uh, compliance uh, or enforcement activity by the government. And we're, we're just relying on some guidance documents that have come out so far. Sticking with you, Jody, for another minute here, I, um, you mentioned HIPAA and I'm, I'm kind of understanding the, um, the thrust of the, the interoperability um, and, and the information blocking rules um, that the, the general idea is that we're trying to get data distributed, get data disseminated, get data into the hands of the patients or, or in some cases other players. Um, but that seems to me to be fundamentally in tension with some of the other existing um, regulations, particularly dealing with um, privacy and and sort of restricting access to information. How um, how have the how has that tension kind of been resolved, and how has that raised issues under the um, the interoperability rules? 
So that's a great question, Joe. And I think that is one of the most interesting things that this rule does is creates this complete paradigm shift from what the healthcare industry has been used to dealing with. So the healthcare industry has been used to dealing with HIPAA. And HIPAA is about protecting data that a healthcare provider or health plan maintains about an individual, maintaining the privacy and security of that data. And so under HIPAA, if an entity that is subject to HIPAA is not sure whether or not they can release data, whether it's permissible for them to release data, they can comply with the rules by not releasing that data, by just holding the data to themselves and not making it available. Well, now comes the interoperability rules and the information blocking rules, and now that same actor, say a healthcare provider or a health plan, could be in violation for failing to share that information that they had been forced to protect under the HIPAA rules. And so it's a really interesting tension by entities that have to comply with both rules to figure out how to walk that line between protecting the data um, and not releasing it when it's not appropriate, but then being required to release that data um, to a another entity on request when it is appropriate. Um, and I think that is a big tension for a lot of a lot of uh, organizations that do have to comply with both rules. I do think that we need some more clarity here um, in figuring out how to support providers and plans that are trying to figure out how to walk that line and how to both on the one hand protect the data and on the other hand release that data and make it accessible to patients to third-party apps at the at the um, direction of the patient and to other entities that have a right to that data or have a permissible purpose for accessing that data so understanding that there are a lot of complexities here and ambiguities that are still being sorted out, um, and in a lot of cases, there appears to be case-by-case -case analysis that is required. Um, what are some of the other resources that regulated entities can access to help understand these rules on a more basic level? Yeah, so I had mentioned earlier that Kroll has a few blog posts and client alerts on this topic that I've referenced throughout. Those are really helpful, of course, but I also mentioned the fact sheets that ONC has on their website. I find those really helpful. They have a lot of infographics and they go through the general requirements, all of those eight exceptions I mentioned, who's considered a healthcare provider, and important dates for regulatory enforcement, which of course have been pushed back due to the COVID-19 pandemic. ONC has also had a few sporadic webinars over the last year and a half, all of which are posted on their website along with the slides, and they have a set of FAQs with fairly detailed answers. On the topic of FAQs, ONC actually published a list of six new questions and answers in November. They cover issues such as patient requests for electronic health information in physical format and the fees that you can charge for that and whether information blocking requirements require the proactive provision of electronic health information through something like a payment portal, among a few other topics. ONC's Health IT Buzz blog is also pretty active. The Deputy National Coordinator for Health IT, Stephen Posnack, just posted a piece in November on how his office is interpreting certain provisions of the ONC rule to go along with those new FAQs that I mentioned. It's a similar situation as CMS for their rule. They've posted guidance for states, guidance for CMS payers, and guidance for third-party app developers, as well as a list of almost 50 FAQs with answers. 
There are also links to implementation specifications, which provide guidance for the development of technology for compliance with the CMS rule. But I don't believe that they've had any webinars or blog posts like ONC so far. And to close things up, I, we, we often like to finish these episodes with a little bit of prognostication. Jody, can I ask, what do you see um, coming down the coming down the bike here? What's what's next in interoperability? Sure, thanks, Joe. Um, so I think we can count on the fact that there will be more guidance from ONC and CMS. They seem to have an interest in helping folks to who are trying to comply to understand how those rules how their rules apply and they have been taking in a lot of input from different uh, actors and trying to come out with FAQs or other guidance to help folks in in complying with the rules so I think that there will be more guidance and more webinars particularly on the ONC side uh, to help folks in, in understanding how to interpret these rules. However, I will say that the FAQs, while they are helpful, they still are vague and don't really answer specific questions about specific facts. There's a lot of wiggle room in there to enable uh, enforcement uh, to be decided at the, based on facts and circumstances that may come about. So I do think it's important for folks to continue to monitor the websites for additional guidance that comes out and also to document any uh, decisions that they make in making their own compliance determinations where the rules are vague. The, the ONC I know has raised interest in doing advisory opinions, which would be extremely helpful to think about how the rules apply to specific facts scenarios. But to date, my understanding is that they don't have the requisite authority to do that um, and that they would need new authority to be able to do advisory opinions. So I don't think we can expect that anytime soon. The thing that we will see in 2022 is the enforcement rules. So the Office of Inspector General has put out draft or, or proposed enforcement rules for the information blocking rules, and they have not finalized them yet. It's not clear what the delay is or when they will be putting them out, but I think we could expect to see them coming out sometime in early 2022. OIG has enforcement authority for alleged violations of information blocking, and the penalties could actually be pretty significant for health IT developers and health information networks and exchanges. They can be up to $1 million per violation, so that can really rack up for uh, violations by those entities. What's interesting, though, is that the the statute specifically, the 21st Century Cures Act specifically says that in order for there to be enforcement on providers, HHS must determine, quote, appropriate disincentives through regulation. And they have not yet published a proposed rule or provided any indication about when they will put out a proposed rule on those appropriate disincentives. So we may see enforcement on health IT developers, health information exchanges, and health information networks before we see enforcement on health care providers, since we will likely have rules for enforcement of, uh, of those latter category of actors. Um, that said, the rules have been in effect uh, already. The ONC information blocking rules uh, took effect earlier this year, and the CMS patient access API provisions took effect in July of this year. We have seen some enforcement delays, like 
the CMS payer-to-payer -payer exchange has had an enforcement delay. Uh, there is no date that they've given for when that delay will be lifted, when that enforcement discretion will be lifted. Um, so we are waiting again to see if new, um, if more guidance comes out from CMS. The one last thing I will say is that right before the end of the Trump administration, there was a proposed rule that came out on interoperability that had standards for the payer-to-payer -payer exchange. My understanding is that in 2022, CMS will publish proposed rules again on um, interoperability, including provisions and standards regarding payer-to-payer -payer exchange, and that might be uh, what takes the payer-to-payer -payer exchange to a more permanent uh, and required position and takes away that enforcement discretion. So lots of things coming down the pike, Joe. Um, I think 2022 will be an interesting year for uh, these interoperability rules and uh, will require some, re some rejiggering of uh, compliance efforts as new guidance comes out. Well, thank you, Jody and Savannah, for joining us for this episode and providing such comprehensive and detailed information about the interoperability rules. Payers, Providers, and Patients Oh My is a podcast brought to you by Kroll & Mooring LLP. You can find more information at kroll.com slash healthcare podcast.